From the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's four, 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 triple, triple, triple Z. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate 40 years of community broadcasting in Brisbane. In our show today, we're going to be looking at one of the recurrent themes of Australian political and social commentary, which is the subject of multiculturalism. We're going to be exploring this by reference to literature, by looking at the book The Slab by Christus Siolkas, and we will also be looking at the issue of multiculturalism from the sociological perspective. We're going to be hearing on Hassan Haj. And of course, there's no talking about multiculturalism in Australia without addressing the policies that apply to refugees and asylum seekers who come to this country seeking safety from harm. We start then with Christus Jokers, the slap. set in Melbourne, some of whose inhabitants are indigenous Australians, but many of whom have roots elsewhere, including India, Britain, Vietnam, Serbia and Greece. And it's a Greek Australian who sets the plot rolling. He's an aggressive, self-made businessman called Harry, who one day, at a barbecue given by his cousin, loses his temper with a misbehaving three-year-old and slaps him. The boy is shocked but the novel's more concerned with the reaction of the adults at the party. As we see the slap and its aftermath from eight different points of view, we realise that this apparently close-knit group of friends and family is in fact deeply divided. Not only do they have clashing opinions about the seriousness of Harry's action and about whether the child's mother was right then to get the law involved, but their rows about that expose existing fault lines between spouses between parents and children, between friends. Fault lines that begin sometimes dangerously to widen. But, Christos, if we could start at the beginning at that fateful barbecue. No, 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 no. It was as if the child had become lost in the very word, as if all the world was contained in the screaming of this one negative syllable. No, 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 no. It was Hugo. All of them by now, Hector figured, must know that it could only be Hugo. It was the men who rushed outside, as if the child's screams were somehow connected to the rules of the game, and therefore it was the men who should arbitrate in the dispute. Hugo was awkwardly slamming the bat on the ground. He needed to hold on to it with both his hands, but his grip was strong. He would not let it go. Ravi was trying to plead with the little boy. Rocco was frowning behind the wicket. It's all right, Hugo, you're not out. He is! Rocco was standing his ground. He got LBW'd. Ravi smiled at the older boy. Listen, he doesn't even know what that means. 
Gary jumped off the veranda and began to walk towards his son. Come on, Hugo, I'll explain why you're out. No! The same piercing scream. The boy looked as if he was going to hit his father with a bat. Put the bat down now. The boy did not move. Now! There was silence. Hector realised he was holding his breath. You're out, Hugo, you bloody spoil sport. Rocco, at the end of his tether, went to grab the bat from the younger boy. With another scream, Hugo evaded the older boy's hands and then, leaning back, he lifted the bat. Hector froze. He's going to hit him. He's going to belt Rocco with that bat. In the second that it took Hector to release his breath, he saw Harry push past all of them and grab at Hugo. He lifted the boy up in the air and in shock the boy dropped the bat. Let me go, Hugo roared. Harry set him on the ground. The boy's face had gone dark with fury. He raised his foot and kicked wildly into Harry's shin. The speed was coursing through Hector's blood. The hairs on his neck were upright. He saw his cousin's raised arm. It spliced the air. And then he saw the open palm descend and strike the boy. The slap seemed to echo. It cracked the twilight. The little boy looked up at the man in shock. There was a long silence. It was as if he could not comprehend what had just occurred, how the man's action and the pain he was beginning to feel coincided. The silence broke, the boy's face crumpled, and this time there was no wail. When the tears began to fall, they fell silently. You animal! Gary pushed into Harry and nearly knocked him over. There was a scream and Rosie pushed past the men and scooped a child into her arms. She and Gary were shouting and cursing at Harry, who had backed against the garage wall and appeared to be in shock himself. Hector felt Aisha move beside him, and he knew as host there was something he should do, but he didn't know what. He wanted his wife to intervene because she would be calm and fair and just. He couldn't be just. He could not forget the exhilaration he had felt when the sound of the slap slammed through his body. It had been electric, fiery, exciting. It was the slap he wished he had delivered. He was glad the boy had been punished, glad he was crying, shocked and terrified. studying Australian literature, we sort of think about multiculturalism as being something very much from the 90s. Mm. In a way, this book is like this post-multicultural book mm. about a society, multi-ethnic society. But also I think you know, Sulkis has something really complicated to say about multiculturalism, where I think his presentation on one hand certainly defends multiculturalism from kind of a white nationalist perspectives, and I think a lot of those debates of the 90s are present in his work. But it's not uncritical either, you know, that his, his books, say also in Dead Europe and in Barracuda as well, show the way that racism persists in an ostensibly anti-racist and multicultural society. So it's not just the kind of celebratory story, it allows a far more complicated vision to come forward. And I think that's a really difficult thing to say because the, the culture wars of the 90s and early 2000s just wanted a kind of easy split between this kind of Anglo-Saxon assimilation or there's multiculturalism and while Sulkis is in the defence of multiculturalism it's also an internal critique of its limitations as well. Played out I think in we see how he presents second generations, how do people who are children of migrants begin to articulate themselves in, in Australia. And also it picks up like there's a standard idea around I think in, in, in the routine critique of Anglo-Australia which is we're not good at parenting mm. and if we could learn from the Greeks and the Italians and the Indians and other mm. people then we'd be better parents but but as Dave says 
these are second generation migrants and their parenting seems to run into similar troubles. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously it's no accident that the terrible parents, Rosie and Gary with the brat, Mm. well, they're the skips. Mm. But they're not terrible parents because they're skips. It's because they bought into this ideology of liberating Mm. the child and not spoiling the child. Um, Yeah. What I set out to do was to try as best I could to paint the reality of urban Australia and to convey it as richly and as honestly as I could as a writer and that I wasn't going to either romanticise the Greek-Australian experience. I, I was trying to give shape to the reality, I think, of what's happening in, in, in Oz and it's happening in a lot of places in the, in the world where immigrant communities have changed because of being in this new culture, but that what they have done as well is change that very culture itself. So I wanted to give a sense of where you as a reader were wondering how much of this is the Greek world, how much of this is the Australian world. The reality is racism is part of Australian culture 
racism is part of so many cultures that have made their home in, in, in Australia. I'd never quite seen that represented before in, 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 you know, in Australian literature. Uh, and I'd wanted to, to talk about that because I think if you're going to take something seriously, and I think racism is something you have to take seriously, then you have to be able to deal and ask questions, deal with the contradictions, ask questions. Well, I got to read this lap because I read Crystal Solkis's books previously and particularly really loved Dead Europe and on the back of that then went on to be very excited when the slap came out. But I already, I think without trying to sound too pretentious, I already thought Crystal Solkis was becoming, I think, the novelist of, of contemporary Australia. What's really interesting is that he's the novelist of contemporary Australia because he seems on the surface to be writing from a marginal position. I think the uh, characterizations in the novel came because I was feeling quite distressed about the selfishness that was part of my generation in, in Australia. You know, we had become, at the, by the end of the 20th century, one of the richest nations in the world. The, the amount of wealth generated in Australia is phenomenal over that time. At the same time, we had become, I thought, more fearful. We had become more anxious. We had become more xenophobic. We had become more greedy. And so those understandings that I had fed the kind of worlds I, I developed, the kind of characters I created, the kind of situations I placed them in. But I also do believe that there are moments of real goodness in the novel. I think there are moments of real people struggling to make amends or to try and uh, rebuild lives. of Manolis's chapter when he reconnects with the generation of people he migrated with then particularly at a funeral and it then kind of staggers drunk through the night afterwards and it explores I think this really mixed and really powerful sentiment of these were the people that he migrated to Australia with or broadly with and they did it with a sense of kind of like camaraderie often a kind of combative camaraderie and the success of their building their life in Australia led to the dissipation of those friendships and existing then in that space of like what was lost I thought was really really powerful and really beautiful particularly at the section where this man's at the uh, later stage in his life and trying to work out what can be connected and like I think critically looking back on his experience and evaluating what was achieved and what was not achieved I thought that was that was fantastic. I mean one of, one of the themes that that is completely universal that is dealt with in that chapter is the idea that we have very close friends and they mean a lot to us. And then for whatever chance, reasons, we grow apart, we don't stay in touch, we don't stay so close. I mean, in a sense, that's normal, that friendship is partly contextual. But then when you look back on old friendships and then you sometimes do wonder why, why did they go away? And it kind of works well in parallel with the main drive of the story because this is the story of a friendship group that is busting up and he's looking back at a part of his life when a friendship group was together and now no longer is. It's a nice kind of double take on the same theme. And I think there's something, if you want, like, you know, Solkis is a critical writer, so you wonder if something he's trying to pull up is a question of, does Australian lives, particularly aspirational Australian lives, allow us to sustain the kinds of friendships that people found necessary in their lives? 
And because geography, you know, there's a lot of time in the book where people are driving to different parts of the city and where people live is really important to the different characters. There's class, there's multiculturalism and there's place all mapped over, over each other in the Australian city. And so you wonder if there's something there, the Australian geography of our lives doesn't allow us to live these friendships anymore that Manolis is looking back on. Because when he goes yeah. back to his friends, he just walks through the old neighbourhood and then ends up at the old place. Yeah. And they're still there yeah. with the, the big kind of veggie patch yeah. that he remembered so well. And then, of course, his friends are there and they get back into the yeah. ouzo and have a dance and remember the old village. From the world of fiction to the world of lived experience, we're going to be hearing next from Justina, who now lives in Canberra but started her life in Poland and from there she came to Australia as a refugee in the early 90s. Justina talks about what it feels like to learn to call Australia home. I came here as a refugee as a child. I wasn't invited, I just came here. Someone else made that decision for me. But at some point I realised that I got given permission to be here by people who didn't really have the right to give it to me. I felt so uncomfortable and I tried to shrink, to not step too hard on a place that wasn't mine. Then one day, doing zoology at uni, I stepped out onto Flinders Reef and I realised just how much I loved this land. It's so full of beauty and amazing life. And then I learned all about the subtlety and the fragility of the land and about how ill-used it was by European settlers and also about the full extent of the shameful treatment of Indigenous Australians. So yeah, I was at uni when I first learnt anything in depth about this. And every time I went into the forest or onto the beach and into the sea, I loved it so deeply, and yet I thought how awful it was that I didn't know the deep history of these places that I loved so much. But I didn't really know how to find out. I mean, how does an uninvited guest ask the owners of the land about it? I felt I didn't have the right. And shamefully, I was too scared to ask in case the people whose land this is didn't want me here and asked me to leave. I kept spending time in this amazing playground that wasn't mine, feeling like a trespasser, but loving it far too much to ever leave. Then a couple of years ago, an Anangu Pichinjara woman told me that my chukupa was intertwined with her chukupa and the chukupa of all of her folk. That their chukupa meant inviting people in and not excluding them. And for the first time, I felt I actually belonged here. Someone with authority had told me it was okay for me to be here. But now that I've accepted the privilege of this place being my home, I know my responsibility. I can't shut my eyes. I can't be silent. I need to show the original owners of this land the respect they deserve. I'm sorry it took me this long. I understand about displacement. I understand about having an enforced disconnection from your history, ancestry and family. I want to be someone who does not sit idly by and watch other people be forcibly disconnected from their past and their land and their people. I'm going to learn more and I'm going to stop being so ignorant. And I won't be silent. I'm so sorry it took me this long. Tu 
originally from Poland and now of Canberra, responded to the news of 2015 that some 
remote Indigenous communities in Northern Australia would be closed as a result of federal policy decisions. We're going to continue to explore the topic of multicultural Australia. And this time we're going to be hearing from sociologist Hassan Haj. There is a well-known history that multiculturalism holds about its own historical emergence that is well worth recounting as it shows how the state upholders of the policy go about distinguishing it from its predecessors. According to this history, the policy of assimilation embraced by successive Australian governments from the end of World War II until the late 1960s was an extension of the white Australia policy in its dealings with the way of post-colonial, non-English-speaking background migration that arrived in Australia to meet the country's post-war reconstruction needs. Assimilationist Australia could not tolerate cultural differences and promoted instead the primacy of its Anglo-Celtic heritage. It explicitly required non-British migrants to adopt the language, the culture and the values that are part of this heritage and to relinquish the distinct cultural practices and attitudes of their home countries. Said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side and the coloured girls go do 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 The policy of integration, which followed that of assimilation, is seen as characterising a transitional period. It was briefly pursued by Billy Snedden, the then Liberal Minister for Immigration in the 1960s, and entailed the recognition that recently arrived migrants could not possibly assimilate in the way it was previously assumed. Migrants would be allowed to maintain their cultural identity for some time after their arrival, and although eventually they would become integrated in mainstream Anglo culture, transitional culturally specific services would be necessary to ensure that this integration, along with the complete Australianisation of the second generation, was a smooth process. It was the emergence of multiculturalism in the mid-70s, or so the story goes, that ushered in the truly pluralistic cultural egalitarian era, where migrants were not only allowed but also positively encouraged to keep the cultural traditions of their home country alive. Australia was a nation where various cultural groups coexisted in one big family. As the first state ideologue of multiculturalism, the then Labour Minister for Immigration, Al Grasby, put it. Despite its fairytale-like progression and happy ending, this history does not account for an important aspect of the social reality reflected and promoted by multiculturalism. Even though it cannot operate with a soft notion of culture which excludes, for instance, political and legal traditions. Multiculturalism has opened a space which permits the articulation of diverse cultural forms, as well as facilitating the interaction between them. At the level of social policy, the services provided to migrants have increased in quantity and quality. Furthermore, a redistribution of state resources in favour of migrant non-white Australians allows the latter to create various structures that help them in the continuing struggle for equality in Australian capitalism. 
As in all tolerant societies before it, however, multiculturalism has remained marked by continuing intolerance, prejudice, racism. Yet despite its current dominance in the West, the theme of tolerance makes its initial appearance as a political and practical state policy in the Muslim empires that follow the Islamic expansionary wars. It is only much later that it makes an emergence in the Europe of the Enlightenment. In both cases, however, tolerance or toleration emerged as a state policy with an anti-discriminatory intent, aimed at regulating relations between various religious communities. Given the religious foundations of the Islamic State, the policy of tolerance was a result of an automatic translation of Islamic Sharia law towards religious minorities. Under the Sharia, Christians and Jews, being people of the book, were to be tolerated. They were the Duma, or those to be protected, albeit for an extra tax, which no doubt provided the rulers with another incentive for their toleration. In Christian Europe, Laws advocating tolerance, such as the English Toleration Act of 1689, appeared after centuries of religious intolerance epitomized by the Inquisitions. There, the call for tolerance came from both inside and outside the Church. Besides revealing the power of the dominant to set their own spatial boundaries, the discourse of limits also reveals the lines where the tolerant can legitimately become intolerant. This is explicitly present in the classical texts where the tolerant are allowed, indeed urged, to become intolerant against those who fall beyond the limits, as it were, such as towards fanatics, Voltaire and Locke, or atheists in the case of Locke. Australian discourses of tolerance often express their intolerance of those who are seen not to respect the unity of Australia or its democratic values and institutions. If that is the case, people committed to tolerance and people who are also continuously practicing the exclusion of legitimate objects of intolerance. And then there is the question of the social conditions of possibility of tolerance, and which gives us a further insight into this complexity. Well, it remains true that the advocacy of tolerance reproduces the same relation of power that existed in the period of officially sanctioned intolerance that usually precedes it. It is nevertheless also true that it results from the dominant reassessing their own ability to dominate, usually due to the capacity of the dominated to resist or challenge the domination that is going on. The theme of acceptance obtains its positive anti-racist value within multiculturalism through its opposition to rejection. If the white Australia policy and assimilation were about treating Australians from a non-English speaking background as outsiders, multiculturalism is about fully accepting them as Australians. Outside this opposition, however, the non-nationalist claims of such a discourse become much more ambiguous and contradictory. To begin with, the popular language of acceptance, often encountered in the form they're just as Australians as we are, or they're Australian too, reinforces the placing of the Anglo-Celtic Australians in the position of power they acquire within the discourse of tolerance. When Philip Braddock, the Liberal Minister for Immigration and Howard, spoke of a meeting of Arab Australians following the elect of the Liberal government in 1996, he addressed the crowd with, I look around me and I see Australians. But judging from the crowd's reaction, Braddock was the only one who seemed unsure about it in the room, and it only had the effect of placing him in the position of the white acceptor, decreeing the Australianness of the ethnic Arab.
Consider this other historical example. In an address to a 1992 Productive Diversity in Business Conference, a kind of economically oriented multicultural festival where everyone celebrates the virtue of tolerance, the National Party leader of the time, Tim Fischer, declared, The nation as a whole has much to gain from the diversity of our population who consider themselves Australians first. This is a classical tolerant statement where the other is welcome, but within limits, of course. Here, the limits are set by Tim Fisher, so religion to Australia first. This demand may appear as eminently reasonable, but is nevertheless embodied in the very nature of the white nation fantasy articulated by tolerance. The point, of course, is not that Australia does not need a population who consider themselves Australians first. But why does Tim Fisher need to say this? Most evidence points to the fact that in much the same way as in any process of migration, the longer migrants stay in Australia, the more they consider themselves Australians first. This process happens because that is how migrants end up feeling comfortable defining themselves. Such a matter of fact happening cannot, however, be acknowledged by Tim Fisher, for he is not really worried about migrants becoming Australians first. He's worried about asserting his role as a white Australian who can demand such a commitment from lesser Australians. He's worried that migrants may become Australians despite him and regardless of his will, and then remove him from the national centre he wishes to occupy. Hassan Haj is a Lebanese-Australian academic serving as Future Generations Professor of Anthropology at the University of Melbourne here in Australia. Haj grew up in Beirut in Lebanon as part of a Maronite Catholic family and he moved to Sydney in the 1970s when he was himself in his 20s. Hassan Haj is an expert in comparative anthropology of racism, nationalism and multiculturalism. He specialises in the politics of Australia and the Middle East. In our next story, we're going to be talking about one of the most controversial aspects of Australia's multicultural policies. We're going to be looking at some of the history of refugee and asylum seeker policies and how they are experienced by people.
Up next, you will hear from two people who have worked either in a detention centre or together with the administration of the centre. The first person you'll hear from is Molly Frankham, who is a student of journalism at UQ. And the second person is Brian Prokopis, who is a community development worker currently working with the Uniting Church here in Brisbane. And he's also the director of the Scattered People's Choir, which is a group of asylum seekers and refugees who get together and sing songs from where they come from, as well as their adopted lands. I think the evidence is very clear. There's absolutely no doubt in the minds um, of psychiatrists that mandatory detention is toxic for mental health, that is directly uh, and causally linked to a range of mental health problems. After I graduated high school, I was looking for a full-time job because I come from a low SES background where my parents were in a, in a position to financially support me. I wanted to take some time off to save money to come to university. So I moved back in with my dad and then I saw a job advertisement on Seek to work in the detention centre and I thought that would be a bit fun because it was kind of near where my dad lived and I didn't think that they would hire me because I was fresh out of graduating from high school, didn't really know anything about the world, was a young woman who's generally quite passive and docile, not really the kind of person who could handle a riot. So I applied and my dad applied as well because he um, is a horticulturalist. So he just kind of goes from contract to contract. So we applied together. Then (laughs) my dad got the job and I got the job. And we were trained together. We had three weeks of training. We did defensive training. So if people were coming up to us to attack us, we did the arm bar and all of that kind of stuff, which was fairly inadequate if anything was to happen. And I spent two months in the Kimberley uh, in Derby at the RAF base there which it was at the time one of the biggest detention centres. It was at capacity 1,800 single adult men. In my first shift on the job was a night shift and someone came up to me and threatened self-harm and they attempted suicide. Luckily it was prevented, but just it was a very eye-opening experience because that there's a huge emotional toll on that actually happening. And as an, an eight, a 19-year-old young woman who had never been so exposed to such a traumatic experience, it was just you know, very full on. And in the Kimberley as well, there was just a sort of, it was a surreal experience because the Kimberley is so hot and you know there's red dirt and we were living in dongers and very strange. <laughs> And so I lived there for two months. We were doing six 13-hour shifts a week, rotating day and night shifts. So we would do one week of days and then one week of nights. So they were really long hours dealing with very intense circumstances. I loved it. As difficult as it was, it was so incredibly rewarding because they were just people who needed a bit of care, a bit of love, and I liked that. I could sit down with them 
and have a cup of tea and sort of talk about their experiences. Whereas there are other, there were other officers who were ex-prison, ex-army, who had no time to talk about feelings and they were the kind of people who didn't identify problems before they arose. So I was quite effective, even though I was a woman, a young woman, and didn't exhibit these really masculine traits. I was very effective at my job. And I never encountered this riot situation that people always talked about. This was so 2012. Well, I was only there for 18 months. I, when I started, Julia Gillard was there and then Kevin Rudd. And there was the the 90-day policy. It's funny because there are all these policies that changed so frequently and um, they didn't really have so much of an impact on the Australian population broadly but they had such a huge impact on the way people reacted and acted in the detention centres so when the 90-day policy came around people knew that they were going to get out into the community and so it was actually a good thing because they knew they would they would just come here come to the detention centres stay there for three months we would provide them with good um, mental health counselling, trauma counselling, they could have their teeth checked and any sort of underlying medical issues. We could teach them English and teach them, teach them a little bit about the Australian culture and they would have this kind of this time knowing that they would be out soon. So I think in a way it was could be constructive if it was just a very limited amount of time. There was one man who was a journalist and had produced a documentary for a French TV um, station, a yeah, French TV station, and he had applied for a skilled working visa three times, and he was um, Hazara, and the Taliban had tried to shoot him, and so he had to move his family somewhere safe, and he had come here on a boat to try, because he would have been killed otherwise and he was so beautiful you know such a lovely man who spoke fantastic English who was a huge feminist as well you know he wanted he had a daughter and he wanted his daughter to be raised in Australia so she would have the opportunity of a good education and a good life and he was a huge advocate for women's rights as an idealistic 19 year old who wanted to make a change for the lives of asylum seekers, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, even though I had the support mechanism of my dad being there. Within six months, three of my colleagues committed suicide. Two of them I was quite close to, and it was just because they were in these really remote locations being the go-to person listening to all these really horrific stories 
of people and you and it's human nature to be compassionate to people especially if you're working with them 12 hours a day every day there was this kind of culture of stoicism and we there were no there were no psychologists that we could speak to and we were away from our families for three months at a time two three months at a time and it was really hard I never felt scared of a riot necessarily because our mandate was just get out. If you know, if uh, the asylum seekers started protesting and rioting, we could just leave. It was not. It wasn't our job to deal with the riot. What I was always scared of was opening the door to someone's bedroom and seeing that they'd hung themselves or committed some kind of self-harm. That was always my biggest fear because I was always treated with such respect from people that I worked with with the asylum seekers. The majority of them were much older than me. They were in their 40s and they, some of them had children my age and so they were always really polite to me so I was never afraid that they would hurt me but it was more that they would hurt themselves in exasperation. About three months after leaving the job, I developed a panic disorder and had a big sort of anxious breakdown. You know, and I called one of my really good friends who I worked with and I said, in 30 years, are we going to stand trial for what we did? You know, was it, is it completely against everything that I believe in? Was I just part of a, the machine that kept people um, locked up in detention? And she said, well, no, because that, that's, that was just a policy and you did the best thing that you could while you're there, while you were there. You treated people with compassion. And I have um, asylum seekers on Facebook who contact me who said that they will always remember me. And so I have a, there's a bit of solace in that. <laughs> Early in 2011, when uh, we realised there was a detention centre here in Brisbane, I wonder how many people in Brisbane know that there is a detention centre. All of us have heard about Baxter and Villawood and Woomera, places like that, but here we've got one under our very noses. So uh, we telephoned from Lifeline. Uh, and spoke to the management out there and said, look, we're social workers and psychologists and community development practitioners uh, here at Lifeline. We've just heard that there is a detention centre here. So we'd like to offer ourselves freely for all the uh, people who are there. We understand they must be suffering varying degrees of trauma. But uh, they said, oh, thanks very much anyway, but, but we've got that covered. We, we, we don't need your assistance. Thank you. Very courteous, but uh, quite dismissive. Took us by surprise. We weren't expecting that. I mean, a week later, uh, we rang back and said, we're a group of musicians. If you know, had some dealings with asylum seekers over the years, we wonder if we could come out and uh, just play our music. 
And sure enough, to their credit, they uh, they saw no problem with that. On the wings of the night, as the daytime mystery, where the speechless unite in a silent accord, using words you will find strange, mesmerized as they light the flame. So we went out there, not sure what we actually expected, but we didn't expect what we uh, what we got. Of course, we had to go through the security uh, protocols, etc. But um, and then the the big glass doors, the security doors were opened, and in we went. It doesn't look like a jail. I've been in jails before uh, as a visitor, but uh, I mean, Pink and Bar. It's um, yeah, it does have um, walls, high walls, and and there is wire on the outside. It looks comfortable enough. So it's not as if the physical environment in itself was a problem, but the people were felt trapped and, and felt bewildered. Why are we here? We have so much to offer, it feels as if our life has just stopped. We're marking time and we don't know for how long this situation will be. And it's that recognition uh, that became quite torturous for the people who were there. And we'd notice week after week the, the depression would uh, prevent people from coming out of their rooms at times. Even though they loved being with us and playing music, etc., at times they couldn't, couldn't do that. So, I mean, we, we just sat and played our music on the first day and uh, people came out of their rooms uh, wondering what the commotion was and uh, gathered in the common room, which is where we were. And uh, after we finished the song, we introduced ourselves and people in broken English said, are you from the government? Uh, we said, no, no, we're not from the government. Are you from the church? We said, no, no, we're not from the church. We're musicians. And... Um, we, we take our music into places. We believe in music, and we believe that um, you know music has an important role to play. And, and the songs we've just played are songs that came out of the Asylum Seeker Centre a number of years ago. And uh, we told some of the stories that led to the writing of those songs, and, and people seem to relate. Uh, I mean, even though these people were from different countries than we're accustomed to, when the Asylum Seeker Centre started up in West End, and when the scattered people subsequently uh, began back in uh, 1998. And we introduced ourselves to, uh, I said, yeah, my, my heritage is Greek, and uh, Yani was next to me. She said, you know, I was born in Israel. And then uh, Paola said, I'm from Colombia. Robbie uh, was Welsh. Um, Chris uh, spoke of his um, indigenous heritage. And so um, as we did that, uh, we watched people's faces and, and it seemed to us at least, that people realise that this this country is a melting pot of so many different cultures and, and we visibly uh, recognise some comfort in that. Probably thinking, well, you know, we can fit in here too, if we're allowed to, you know, which was the obvious um, sore point. And then we uh, handed over our guitars. As we thought, by the law of averages, 
there's bound to be somebody here who plays a guitar. Sure enough, somebody would uh, you know, put their hand up and this young fellow came over and took the guitar and played us a song. Uh, it was a beautiful song. You know, we didn't know what it was about though, but we, we just followed the, the cadence of the music and uh, the, the, uh, the minors and, and thought, I wonder what this song is about. Uh, we were able to look at people's faces and there were tears. And I remember thinking that, um, you know, these people have escaped an oppressive environment. Um, so I thought, I wonder if the song's a protest song. Then again, I was also thinking that when we Australians are overseas, inevitably we get asked to play a song and we, we play Home Amongst the Gum Trees or Waltzing Matilda. So kind of a nationalistic, patriotic song. So I was thinking, maybe it's that. But when the song was completed, we said to the uh, interpreter, what was the song about? And she said, uh, it's a love song. It just made us realise that here in this um, pressurised situation, the song's reflecting those, that most important of all human feelings, that the, the desire for love and to be loved is, is prominent. But here we were singing about love in this uh, uh, restricted environment in a detention centre in Brisbane, Australia. I thought, wow, how ironic is that? That was on the 9th of June, 2011. us to the end of another edition of Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate 40 years of community broadcasting here in Brisbane. You're tuned in to Radio 4 Z. This episode was recorded at the studios of Radios 4EB, 4 Z, as well as The Edge within the State Library of Queensland. To learn about the range of courses and training sessions available for free or for very cheap, you can visit the State Library of Queensland's website. We acknowledge the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Fund, without whose help this project would not be possible. And to MDA, the Multicultural Development Association, who is a proud partner in this project. See you next week.
Everyone around here wears the same sunglasses Cash and